Welcome to week six of Home Cooked Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government, and with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, April 20th, and we're just a few days removed from the first quarter fundraising deadline for federal campaigns. Joining us to go behind the numbers is one of the smartest and most well-respected political analysts out there, Nathan Gonzalez, the editor and publisher of the nonpartisan newsletter Inside Elections. After that, Greg and I will discuss a campaign ad that hit the airwaves last week and stood out among the rest. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jerose Gem. Jerose Gem, my number of the week is 71.6 million. That's the cumulative amount in campaign cash on hand as of March 31st for the 29 U.S. House Democrats seeking re-election in November from districts that President Donald Trump won in the 2016 presidential election. That's according to campaign finance documents filed last week to the Federal Election Commission and analyzed by Bloomberg government. That comes out to an average of $2.47 million for those 29 Trump district Democrats who are running again, a robust sum about seven months before the election. Our analysis of those reports can be found in a story on our website, about.bgov.com news. We'll have more about the first quarter campaign finance reports coming up, but $71.6 million, that's your Jero's Gem of the Week. All right, and after the break, we'll bring on Nathan Gonzalez of Inside Elections. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections, a go-to newsletter for political professionals and junkies alike for intelligence on all things campaigns. I know I read it. I know Greg reads it. Nathan, thanks for coming on the pod. Hey, no problem. Uh, my my schedule's a little more clear these days. So, <laughs> well, I want to ask you about that. How has publishing your newsletter gone while while being home with kids? Well, I think we have a couple of advantages at Inside Elections. One is that the elections are still happening, uh, whether people are ready or want them to happen or not. They're they're still happening, and I do believe that there are still uh, people out there that want to learn more about uh, about what's going on and, and who these candidates are. Uh, the other thing is that we're a pretty lean, mean operation. Uh, I've got uh, uh, my main colleague, uh, Jacob Rubashkin, uh, on board. Uh, he's working from home. Uh, I'm working from home. Uh, and we can we don't have this big, giant uh, conglomerate or bureaucracy to contend with. Uh, we can kind of get things done how we need to get it done. And full disclosure, I'm a proud former contributing editor to Inside Elections. So it was always great working with you the last few years. Um, but one of my favorite aspects of your newsletter is the candidate conversations. Um, and I know it's also a critical component to how you rate the races. You actually sit down with a lot of the top candidates in the big races. Have you done those virtually or was most of that done last year in the off year? So we, that's a great question. Uh, and we haven't done one virtually. Uh, it does feel like depending on how the protocols, uh, where we end up over the next few weeks and months, uh, what that looks like. Uh, but it's uh, it is fun to try to at least see a person and have a conversation face to face, even if it happens to be virtual, and just get a little bit of a better feel for them instead of just reading about them uh, online and and checking out their website. So I you know that's one aspect of this that I think is going to have to change and and we'll need to adapt. All right, 
Greg, Nathan, let's talk fundraising. Did something happen in fundraising, Kyle? <laughs> uh, you know, there's a couple couple numbers floating around on Twitter last week. Um, any big takeaways or specific highlights from the first quarter fundraising deadline? Uh, it was Wednesday, Wednesday night. I know Greg was up late uh, checking checking out the numbers as they came into the FEC. Yeah, I guess one thing that jumped out at me was how kind of fortified the Democrats from competitive districts are with money as they brace for competitive or potentially competitive re-elections in which they'll you know, have to use that money to probably emphasize their legislative accomplishments and more district-specific accomplishments and probably less about their opposition to Trump, depending on what the political environment is. We're looking at the um, really, we look really closely at the 29 Democrats seeking re-election from districts that Trump won in 2016. And, you know, some that jumped out to me, you know, Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan's 8th district, that's in the Lansing, East Lansing area, some suburbs of Detroit, $3.7 million. That's the most cash by any uh, Democratic freshman from a Trump district, uh, more than nine times as a top Republican challenger. Jared Golden of Maine, Haley Stevens of Michigan, Antonio Delgado of New York, 10 to 1 cash advantages over their leading Republican opponents. Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, 12 and a half to 1. Angie Craig in Minnesota, 20 to 1. You know, Lauren Underwood, 10 to 1 over uh, Jim Oberweiss in Illinois, who's a self-funder, but he has other uh, issues, including the fact that Republican leaders didn't want him uh, to win the, the, the primary in the first place. So, uh, you know, money in and of itself won't win you an election, but it does help to boost your name recognition, especially if you're a challenger and if you're an incumbent, it can help buttress your uh, showing and your position in these uh, challenging districts. One of the big things for me on the fundraising is that it can there continues to be two different planets that the two parties are, are, are fundraising on. I mean, some of the top Republican challengers will raise 400, 500, 600,000. But then I feel like I get that vision of the Nancy Pelosi clap uh, at the State of the Union, I think, where she's sort of trying to congratulate, half congratulate President Trump because the Democrats, their top fundraisers are raising a million, a million plus, you know, sometimes two million if you're Katie Porter. Uh, It's just, it's insane. And I think Republicans are in denial about what is driving this fundraising discrepancy. I think that they believe that it's because Democrats have a head start on online fundraising. And to me, it's because of one thing, actually because of one person, Donald J. Trump. President Trump being in the Oval Office is driving Democratic voters to action, and they're doing a better job of finding races all around the country, no matter where that particular donor might live. You know, Republicans like to point to Beto O'Rourke's Senate race in 2018 and say, look, he outspent Ted Cruz, still lost by three points. Um, Of course, we're going to get outraised. These are incumbents and, you know, liberals across the country hate Trump. So they're donating everywhere. But, you know, we still have the winning message. That's their argument. What do you think about that, Nathan? Well, money money isn't the only uh, it's not the only factor in a race, but Texas ended up being a three-point race. I mean, we have to right. remind that. And and when we're particularly if we're looking at the House landscape, you know, can how many Republican challengers can afford to get outspent by that wide of a margin that Greg, those margins that Greg was talking about? I I, I don't think very many of them will be able to stand up in a Senate race. Usually, even the let's take Arizona for example. You know, Arizona Martha McSally's fundraising has been good. I, I think she what she raised six plus this quarter. You know, but Mark Kelly is just through the say through the atmosphere. Now we're getting into bad astronaut puns. Uh, I you know, this this cycle is going to test the 
what Republicans are saying right now is that really there's diminishing returns. The Democrats are raising so much money. How can you possibly spend that much in this district or that state? It's not going to matter. And like, well, we're about to find out in six months whether whether it matters or not, because I don't know that these particularly the House candidates can stand up under the the weight of this spending. Yeah. And it, and I wonder if the coronavirus is going to put some of these challengers even further behind now going forward. Like, you know, I, I, we saw some big numbers, even from some Republican House challengers in Q1. But if people have stopped donating and they're going to stop donating over the next couple of months, that's really going to hurt them and, and set them back even more, I would think. Also, these Republicans aren't likely to have the environment, the political environment in their favor. Sometimes you can overcome spending advantages, spending disadvantage if you have the political momentum or the environment on your side. And, you know, we have six months to go. We're in the we're in the middle or at the beginning of a pandemic. We'll see how it plays out. But I don't think they're going to have the wind at their back to kind of overcome some of these financial challenges. Nathan, how has the pandemic affected campaigning and fundraising. I guess we really don't have a precedent for this, but um, uh, does it does it you know hurt one party or any subset of candidates as far as you can tell? Well, it, it certainly has affected the physical aspects of campaigning, whether it be, well, the immediate one is the signature gathering. Uh, kind of uh, buried in the fundraising news last week was that uh, it doesn't look like Republicans, their preferred candidate against Haley Stevens in Michigan, has said he might not have enough signatures uh, in order to get on the ballot. Uh, door-to-door retail campaigning, campaign events are obviously on hold. Fundraising physical events are on hold. That will probably, uh, that will hurt candidates who don't have a pre-established um, network to draw on. Uh, overall, I think we're in wait and see mode. Um, I, I, but I am falling, continue to fall back on show me the data that shows that this, the environment has changed. Basically, nothing matters until proven otherwise. And I think when this all shakes out, my default position is that we we end up back in a partisan environment. Republicans are going to vote for Republicans. Democrats are going to vote for Democrats. And then we're left with independents. And right now with the economic piece, I think that's where Republicans and the president are in, are in trouble in particular because that was, that's been his – uh, that's been hit the best hand that he could deal. I was going to say Trump card. I'm just full <laughs> of dad puns. That, that's been his saving grace for the last three years. And it, it, the, the economy is not going to bounce back as quickly uh, as what I think he wants and what the White House and what Republicans want. So I, I think Democrats are in, are in good shape. Speaking of Democrats being in good shape, it looks like the Senate is in play. I'm not so sure about the House. In fact, I don't think it's in play, but I, you know, I think Republicans could pick up seats. There are places uh, for growth there. But um, has anything changed your your thoughts on on just how in play the Senate is, and and what's your math there? Where how do they get to uh, three or four seats? Well, the the discussion about the Senate almost has to start with the presidential race because if you, depending on if you believe the president's going to get reelected or not, that. Of, that impacts the number of seats that Democrats need to control. Uh, I uh, I believe the president is probably at least a narrow underdog uh, right now, and so that would mean Democrats only need a net gain of three seats for control because they would just need to get to 50-50. Uh, I do think Doug Jones is going to lose in Alabama, although I wouldn't be surprised if Republicans have to spend some money there. 
before it's over. Doug Jones, I think, I believe that's $8 million cash on, had $8 million cash on hand at the end of the quarter. Republicans still have to choose a nominee who's going to be broke by the middle of July when they have that runoff. Uh, Then what's the path? I think that Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina, and Maine are all are all very vulnerable for Republicans right now. And uh, if the election were held today, I'm not sure Republicans win any of those. Uh, And that's not even the totality of the map. Uh, You know, Iowa, uh, Iowa is still vulnerable. Kansas, if Chris Kobach wins, uh, the nomination is is a problem for Republicans, so I I think there are just there are so many Democratic opportunities, and uh, in the environment it will be I believe it will be at least neutral for Democrats if not a Democratic leaning environment. I mean, I've always been fascinated by as you mentioned Nathan the, how presidential elections affect House and Senate races and this rise in straight ticket voting we've seen the last you know few decades. I mean why do you think I mean, so many House and Senate race outcomes move in tandem with presidential election outcomes in in those same districts and states. Yeah, how long do we have on this podcast, guys? Um, no, I, and I'm not even sure I'm the expert on this. But what I but what I do know is that in 2016, and you all know this, in 2016 was the first time that all of the Senate results matched up with the presidential results. Every single state, there was not one that broke. And that's not necessarily what's going to happen but I th- in, in November, but I think that's the, that's the trend. And, and so Republicans hanging their hat on a large number or even um, two or three Republican incumbents running against or running better than the president where the president might lose a state is is dicey (laughs) and i just and i think the appetite for americans to everyone wants to say that they're open-minded and they're independent and they're just voting for the person when it really usually boils down boils down to bigger issues about who you want to control the government and and i think most people have decided which party they want to be in charge and, and are less likely to make a a distinction. The one of the one of the fascinating races this cycle, I think, is the Montana Senate race, because uh, Democratic Governor Steve Bullock, the only sitting Democrat running for the Senate, so you know he's in position. He's the face of the response to the coronavirus in the state. He's not going to be able to campaign, I think, as much as what Democrats thought he was when he got into the race late. But now he's going to be uh, his. Uh, his standing, I think, is going to rise or fall with his performance or his uh, how he handles pushing the state through the crisis. And, and we'll see if Republican Steve Daines, you know, what what his profile can be in the next few months. You, you talk about alignment and partisan alignment. Look at California, every single House district, all 53, uh, the ones that voted for Trump have a Republican congressman. The ones that voted for Clinton have a Democratic congressman person. Uh, it's just, uh, that, that is the most amazing stat beyond the 2016 Senate and presidential alignment. Um, California perfectly aligned. Yeah. And that's where I, I believe leader McCarthy said they're challenging or they're going to win back seven seats in California. I'm like what? And then you look at the fundraising numbers that Greg ran over, uh, ran right, down. I'm like what, right. how, how is this going to, I mean, we have to be open-minded. I mean, that's the worst thing you can do as a, a political analyst or handicapper is make up your mind about what's going to happen. But you also can't ignore data and what the, what the data are showing. 
And I was just going to say, uh, Nathan, do you have like a favorite sleeper race or two, maybe a race or two that um, come to mind that maybe um, aren't getting the attention you think they might deserve or might become more competitive than maybe uh, isn't currently anticipated? This is the trap question, Greg. No, it's, a, it's, it's our job to avoid surprises. Uh, it seems like inevitably in, in wave elections, there are surprises. For example, you know, we did not have uh, Kendra Horn or the Russell race in Oklahoma on our ratings chart in 2018. In my defense, I believe that there were people at the DCCC who could not have picked Kendra Horn uh, out of a lineup. If Kendra Horn had walked through the doors of the DCCC, I'm not sure they would have known who she was either so uh but for this uh i I don't know you know what i'm gonna give credit to my colleague jacob uh because he has been keeping track of this alaska senate race um it's a little bit it's a little bit different because they're the the official Democratic establishment is behind a an independent, um, Gross. He's a doctor uh, and facing uh, Dan Sullivan, the Republican incumbent senator. Uh, you know, just by by the numbers, I start as, as skeptical, but stranger things have happened. And it wasn't that long ago that there was a Democratic senator uh, of Alaska with with Mark Begich. And so that's that's a race to uh, a race to keep an eye on. All right. Well, we will have to leave it there. Uh, you can follow Nathan on Twitter at Nathan L. Gonzalez. That's Gonzalez with an S. And check out his publication at InsideElections.com. Nathan, we really appreciate your time. Hey, okay, no problem, guys. Nathan mentioned the Kansas Senate race, and up next, the ad of the week is from a congressman running for that seat who is playing up his career outside politics. For 5,000 Kansans, life began here, in the trusted hands of Dr. Roger Marshall. For Dr. Marshall, pro-life's not a slogan, it's his life's work. In Congress, Dr. Marshall's delivered for Kansas, fought for our farms and small towns, our families and freedoms, stood strong with the president to make America great again. I want to thank Congressman Roger Marshall. Roger's been a great friend. Now Trump needs a trusted ally in the Senate. Dr. Marshall will deliver, secure the border, confirm conservative judges, uphold the bedrock Christian values we cherish at our core. And with coronavirus putting lives and livelihoods at risk, Kansas could use a pro-life doctor in the Senate. I'm Dr. Roger Marshall, and I approve this message because our country is in critical condition. Dr. Roger Marshall for Senate, trusted by Trump, delivering for Kansas. That was an ad from Congressman Roger Marshall, a Republican running for the open Senate seat in Kansas. He faces a competitive primary for the nomination and is clearly trying to separate himself here in a few ways. Also, Greg, how about that narrator? He has such a familiar and reassuring voice, doesn't he? (laughs) That's right, yeah. Uh, This ad uh, regularly refers to himself as Dr. Marshall rather than as Congressman Marshall. It shows him in a a doctor's lab coat with a stethoscope. And, you know, I've seen a lot of ads where medical professionals have run for Congress, or even if they're incumbents, they tend to highlight their medical background rather than, you know, calling up their attention to, say, their political background. So doctors, especially now, have a much higher approval rating than politicians. Uh, This ad also invokes the coronavirus pandemic and said it would be a good time to have a, quote, pro-life doctor, unquote, in the Senate. So Marshall is emphasizing his anti-abortion position with words and with imagery. 
you know, abortion, border security, conservative judges, all issues that he mentions in this ad are big issues for the Republican electorate. So this really checks a lot of boxes if you're a, you know, a uh, conservative Republican running in a Republican primary. And if you have footage of President Trump praising you, certainly you're going to want to use that if you're a Republican running in a Republican primary, Kyle. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's heard of politicians kissing babies. Here he is delivering babies right here in the ad. So, all right. Well, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But first, let's review last week's question. I asked for the only two states where governors serve two-year terms. Kyle, would you like to share your answer with the rest of the class? I'm heading to the Northeast, New Hampshire and Vermont. Correct. Well done. Vermont, New Hampshire, the only two states where governors serve for two-year terms, just like House members. Uh, rather than four years in other states. So Kyle and everyone else who got it right, you do pass go, you do collect $200 in fake Monopoly money, of course. Now for this week's question, Vermont and New Hampshire also have Republican governors in states that voted Democratic for president in 2016. Vermont's governor is Phil Scott, New Hampshire's is Chris Sununu. They are not the only states with that distinction, however. Question, how many states that voted Democratic for president in 2016 have Republican governors today. Now, I was nice enough to give you two of them just now in a segue from last week's answer to this week's question, but you have to get the rest of them. You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, anything else you watching this week? Yeah, Kyle, today's the deadline for the National Political Party Committees and many political action committees, known as PACs, to disclose their contributors, their total fundraising and spending for the month of March. It's also the last full week of the delayed congressional primaries in Ohio, which is finishing its election on Tuesday, April the 28th. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you next week. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, And I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.